welcome, I'm Jean Parker, and you're listening to Discovering How, a podcast of the ethical business building the future organization. We're a global learning community using our workplaces to build a better future. On today's program, we're discovering more about the function of spiritual values in companies. Doug Hank gives us practical examples from his career for applying spiritual values in complex global business environments. We'll hear from Majo Lips Wiersma about new mandates on corporations for responsible conduct as well as profit. But first, Maya Groff is an attorney working in The Hague on international treaty negotiations. She says that justice is a core principle supporting spiritual values. She began by explaining how spirituality could be defined as an umbrella concept with universal application. It can refer to religions, all different uh, types of religious practice, and perhaps at the core for me of, of uh, different religions and spirituality is the application of the golden rule found in all religions about treating others as you would have them treat you. And that is um, a universal concept, isn't it? Yes, yes. And, uh, and then if you apply that principle in a workplace, there are certain consequences. It means you you honor and value your colleagues, you treat them with respect, you uh, implement justice as much as possible in the workplace, you believe in people's capacities and their uh, gifts, you also believe in human nobility um, and treat others with dignity. And then uh, this has a spillover effect, of course, if, if the whole enterprise has, has those values uh, and then joined with you know, hard work, discipline and excellence, I think these are, are actually, in fact, the most uh, successful enterprises. They're the most successful workplaces. Now, when you describe a spiritual enterprise or a spiritual workplace, what does that look like? When you are in workplaces that seem to be motivated by higher values, a sense of altruism, a sense of serving others, it is tangibly different. And there's, there's, there's more excitement. There's more joy there's there's better cooperation and also the joy that comes from working together uh effectively and you can you can tangibly feel that in in uh different workplaces you had mentioned also um workplaces where there are maybe concrete expressions of religious sensibility or spiritual sensibility for example with prayer Um, and i know from my experience in the west that's not that would not be necessarily a common practice at most workplaces. However, I, for example, I, I have um, a, a good friend who's a manager uh, in India, yes. and he said that he had multi-faith prayer uh, sessions. He started them at a certain point in his business, and he noticed concrete, tangible change in the workplace a- atmosphere mm. when, when that was practiced. So I think when, where there are societies where people are still open to uh, those sorts of more classical expressions of, of spiritual uh, faith, uh, that can be very powerful in a given workplace. I mean, particularly in his case, you know, it was this beautiful interfaith sort of expression that really set the stage for collaboration, acceptance, uh, you know, uh, benefiting from the diversity of, of all of the employees, uh, et cetera. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. When I lived in India and when I visit now, expressions of faith are everywhere, of course. And so a, a typical meeting would begin with the lighting of a lamp 
And I remember on those occasions feeling much different about the meeting that was about to take place than I do in the West here where uh, things just kind of happen. Mm-hmm. What about justice as essential in a spiritual workplace? Tell me how that works. Justice is an innate uh, human drive, I would say. So if uh, there is uh, an effort to ensure justice uh, within a workplace, which of course links back to the golden rule found in every religion that we want or we should strive to treat others as we would wish to be treated. And that is uh, based on this core principle of, of, of justice and equal human nobility. So to implement all the facets of justice in, in a workplace, I think there are many, there are many aspects uh, from labor uh, law, employee law, uh, to as we were speaking about the hierarchies in a workplace, what is just in that respect, um, what is just in the sense of uh, uh, compensation, economic compensation, other compensation. There are many facets of implementing justice uh, within a workplace, and we are multifaceted organic beings and uh, beings, and every workplace is also multifaceted. So uh, what I think is important with respect to justice in workplaces is uh, for there to be this sort of engagement uh, of the human intuition, firstly, uh, about justice and seeking to have uh, a just workplace and to applying that lens to, to all sorts of, of different aspects. I suppose there's justice within the workplace, but then there's also justice between that workplace or that company and the outside world, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. This is why I love the, the concept of, for example, the B Corp, uh, movement, which is now a global movement, that businesses should be a force for good in society. And you see this also, for example, in the social entrepreneurship movement uh, and others where uh, entrepreneurship, uh, business activity really is supposed to positively uh, contribute to society rather than just being this uh, sort of walled off um, sort of narcissistic entity that uh, has a very short-term profit perspective and is not connected to the wider uh, social ecosystem and environmental ecosystem. Uh, so it's, it's a transition from being, again, very profit-driven and materially driven to have more holistic objectives and to very consciously also uh, wish uh, to contribute to the justice of, of the, the wider society. And it is my firm belief that business can play this role and can be profitable uh, and uh, also economically much more sustainable if, if the business takes uh, such a perspective. Doug Hank is the chairman of the Asian Corporate Governance Association. Here is how he defines a spiritual workplace. I often like to start at sort of the highest level principles or vision uh, for a company and then to use that as a guidepost for other things to do. Um, In a a world where work is service, then it seems to me that you need to be um, working in an environment, either a large corporation or a small one or your own enterprise, 
where you feel that you are providing some social benefit, value added to society, if you will. So that's the overall context. I think that's the overall context. And, and, and it leads to a level of internal motivation because you are motivated to come to work every day for reasons other than someone's paying you a dollar more than the company next door uh, or you get a, you know, a bit more benefit. You're, you're coming because you feel like you're part of a machine uh, that's making a difference. Really, for, for mainstream people in the world, what we can hope is that we can make a small but positive difference. For those of us who have children, we can raise children who make a small but positive difference. And in that way, civilization advances. And so in my mind, the spiritual enterprise goes right back to the heart of why we are here as human beings and how we act on a day-to-day basis. We want to contribute and we want our work to contribute as well. So it's that fundamental. It's that fundamental in my view. What are some of the practical things that you've done as a corporate leader to develop that spirit or that altruism in the organizations that you've worked for and the, the work teams that you've worked with? I, I worked in the insurance world in one capacity or another for over 40 years. And I felt very blessed in that world, Gene, because um, insurance is a business that when it is done ethically, when you balance the needs of all the stakeholders, then there is little question that you provide a social benefit. And you can give lots and lots of practical examples on a daily basis about how that happens. The challenge with the insurance industry is that it's an industry that involves money. <laughs> so any industry that involves money, there's always some yahoo along the value chain somewhere who wants to grab a bit more than he or she is really entitled to whether it's higher salary or a bonus or a higher commission or not paying the claims or, or whatever it is. And so in my career, Gene, it became very straightforward to say to people, you work for an industry that does good. And it does good when we are behaving ethically and ethical decisions start with balancing the needs of all the stakeholders. And if you do that, then you will be part of a machine that's providing value. Now, how did you convince people that it was in their best interest to do this when the predominant state of mind is to grab all the money you can? Yeah, uh, and and the answer is that it starts with hiring, really. Um, As part of the interview process, the sales, if, if you really would like to hire someone you think that they're capable and that they'll fit, you're partly listening to what motivates them, right? So it's their answers to your question. Uh, let me give you a specific example, Gene. You were asking for specific examples. I, in my last job, I was the Asia regional head of a large European-based uh, financial services firm. We were not large in Asia, um, but we had the opportunity to make great uh, gains by aggressively moving into the 21st century world of digital mobile technology, direct access to the customers, and not going through intermediaries, that sort of thing. And so I was looking for someone with deep experience in that digital world uh, in order to come join the region as the chief digital officer, if you will, for the region. And I ended up interviewing a number of people. And in in one case, finally, the fellow that I really thought would be a tremendous fit was one where I said to him, come, I said, you have, you have been part of startups. You've been part of this tech world. You've, you've, experience that firsthand, you know what it's like to work for that kind of a dynamic organization. I said, the insurance industry is late in coming around to that business, into the business. Come help a 19th century industry 
become a 21st industry, it's 21st century industry. And he did join us. It's been a good fit. Um, and he was, of course, motivated by the social good that we do, but also motivated by saying, how can I help them really grab a hold of what this new technology is going to bring to our industry? So that's just one example. But he was a good fit from his own ethical perspectives. He was motivated by the social dynamics. He was a little bit worried about going from a, you know, Microsoft, Apple, eBay kind of an environment to an old insurance company, right? Uh, but I was able to persuade him saying, look, help us change because that's what we need to do. Hmm. Now, have you ever been in the position where you had to convince the overall corporate leadership that operating in this way was really a good idea? I've certainly worked for leaders in my career. I mean, I've worked for different companies and different leaders. And I, I've certainly worked for uh, leaders at the top level who were very, very much focused on the bottom line. They had gotten there by being very aggressive and uh, successful in their career by, by pushing results. Um, and, and yes, there were times when I was a voice that said, yes, but while we want to achieve those goals, we need to achieve them in a way that we can look, we can look in the mirror. I, I wasn't quite that rude, but you, know, you get what I mean. I would, I would raise that. I, I remember my very first uh, sort of corporate management meeting, 100, 100 top executives from around the world with one of the companies I worked for. First one I'd ever been to. I was fairly new to the organization. And on the last day when we were reviewing some of the takeaways, I, I stood up and I said, let's not forget that we make a difference. Let's not forget that what we do is important to society. And there was sort of dead silence around the room. And I thought, uh-oh, I wonder if I've joined the wrong group. <laughs> but, af but afterwards, a couple of the very, like two of the top three executives came to me afterwards and said, that was well said. And it was a great way to finish the, finish the conference. And so we could be reminded that this is a large part of what motivates us on a day-to-day -day basis. And this so, was in the insurance industry. Also in the insurance industry. Uh -huh. Yes, absolutely. Uh -huh. Are there questions though that, that leaders need to ask themselves to get to really what the altruism is. What's the purpose of this business? How do I feel about the ultimate consumer? Is the consumer better off buying this product? Is this a product that I would sell to my own family, to my own mother? Uh, is it a product that I would purchase myself? I, there are a number of questions like that, Gene, where you, you take it back to consumers, to personal uh, relationships, to society, which is, at the end of the day, individuals, right? It, it is consumers. Mm. And I, I would look at it entirely from that perspective. The grandma test. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> grandma and the headline test. I've always liked the headline test. Too. If, 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 if this shows up on the front page of the New York Times, is this something you could defend? How are you going to feel about it? Right? How are you going to feel about it, right? If all the facts were known. And now, EBBF member Marjo Lips-Wiersma contributes her views on the stakeholder expectations of the 21st century in an article entitled Purpose Beyond Profit Towards the Spiritual Foundation of Corporate Responsibility. This is read for us by EBBF member Ralph Blundell. As corporate power grows and business organizations increasingly have the capacity to become one of the main instruments for constructive social change, a renewed look at the primary reasons for their existence is called for. The effective organization of the future has to have a clear purpose that legitimizes its very existence. No other purpose than serving the real needs of humanity will be large enough to address the spiritual needs of the employees working in an organization. To address 
The crises of cynicism that negatively affect the ethical behaviour, motivation, innovation and participation in many firms. And to address the urgent needs of humanity as a whole. Too many businesses are entering the new era with an ideology forged in the 18th and 19th centuries, stuck in a solely profit-driven focus that removes them further and further from the values held by most of the rest of the world. The larger mandate for business is changing. Although shareholders still want results, other stakeholders want results as well, and these are not necessarily measured financially. The ideology of purpose that will dominate the future is one that finds acceptance and participation by society at large, unleashes human potential, draws individuals and organisations towards ethical behaviour and makes it possible for every human being to make a difference. Only the purpose of serving the real needs of humanity is likely to meet these requirements. Thank you for joining us. We hope today's program has inspired you, our listeners, with ideas for discovering how we can all build a prosperous, just, and sustainable civilization. This has been Ethical Business Building the Future, Discovering How. Get more from this podcast by sharing your comments, an article, or a link to something that's important to you. You can contact us on our website, www.ebbf.org. I'm Jean Parker for EBBF, and I thank you for listening. Thank you.